Welcome to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. This is a project based on the learnings from Startup DNA and the founder's journey. On today's episode, we talk with Gary Darna, founder of CompleteSet, as he shares his journey and learnings. Some interesting things you'll hear from Gary because he has startup experience in both Silicon Valley and the Midwest, as well as working for some of the world's largest companies, such as Kroger and Procter & Gamble. I was thinking about it just this morning. There's there's like this, um, so emails. I find that a lot of people that uh, do different levels of business with my organization don't respond to emails of the rest of my team in the same manner that they would respond to me. And then inevitably, I've got to send a, you know, rather direct response to say, hey, what's up? And then, of course, they they reply. And I find that fascinating because like I've hired my people for a reason. You you know what I mean? I I have no idea what psychological factors at play to to say that we have to go through those steps. Yeah, that's interesting. I've not experienced that before, but I could see why that would be the case just because if they're familiar with you, they might think, oh, well, I only I only communicate with him. I think there's some of that on um my my investors uh but I can tell you on new entrepreneurs they they think that I'm the key decision maker you know the that just anoints hey we're investing in this company and they think I, they must think by skipping whatever our process or whatever our people is that they're they're getting a leg up or you know whatever but the reality of it is they're wasting an email or they're wasting a phone call because I'm not even a part of that front end process. So that's a, that's another. Yeah. Well, and that might be the case at some other, you know, funds where there's like a junior associate level person and they can't actually make an investment decision, but that's not how kinetic is structured. At least it's my understanding. No, we, the, we put the decision makers, we don't run and that's a good point. I should really like make sure the public knows that. We have no, there's no non-decision makers at Kinetic. So we don't waste anyone's time. When you get to Kim or Chris or Kyle, you or, you know, Wendell, you immediately are talking to the decision maker. If you get to me, think about this. I am the only non-decision maker when it comes to the initial investments. I'm on the investment committee for the larger follow-on investments. And of course, I have a huge role in fundraising and our strategic plan and the sell side of our business, but I'm not on the buy side. I'm the only non-decision maker. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, people don't know that. They may assume it's structured similarly to, you know, typical VC operation where, you know, if it's a first uh, contact with a founder, they may only talk to, say, you know, an associate, and then that person has to convince the partners yeah, uh, to take a meeting, essentially. And there's all these, exactly. like, I guess, steps that they have to go through, like gatekeepers, essentially, to get to the person that can actually 
give a term sheet. Absolutely. You know, that, that makes me think, I know you offered it once um, and I really wasn't reading or paying attention. And cause I were, cause I've, you know, I've got my plate full of tons of stuff, but that, that seems like maybe that belongs on our website somewhere. Like this is how our process is different. And this is the benefit to you, Mr. Entrepreneur, you know, we're saving you, we're saving, we're basically saving you two to three meetings. So we're saving you roughly, you know, three to six hours of your life. Yeah, which is important because, you know, the average round for most founders takes dozens of meetings at a minimum. Sometimes it's over 100. And, you know, you got to go through a lot of no's before you get to even one yes. Of course, things seem to accelerate a little bit once you have that first person that's like the lead investor. This was my experience when I was doing it. Yes, yes. So um, shifting gears, one of the things that I wanted to pick up and continue to talk about because uh, there's a lot of uh, interest in this space is corporations, you know, corporate innovation, you know, the challenges uh, that maybe I've seen or you've seen um, in, and why those are. We, I think we were just ending or just starting, you know, um, that, you know, that conversation, but let me lead it off with at least especially locally with the experiences of the of the corporations that you and I have been around, why is innovation such a hard concept for them? Oh, I think it, there's not like one exact reason. I think it's a, a combination of factors. Um, I think a big one is the lack of autonomy. Uh, you know, a lot of the people that are working on the actual products, uh, you know, whether it's a website, a native app, or something else for a larger business, there is not a lot of room for experimentation and quick decision-making. And innovation requires, at least according to most that you know, are familiar with the process, Amazon does a great job of this, um, you know, failure. There has to be a high degree of tolerance for failure. And what I have found is in the bigger companies here in town, everything seems to be like they want to make it a success right out of the gate. And that requires a bunch of people to give their sign off for releasing things and trying, you know, new and interesting ways of doing things for customers or users. That's, that's a big one. I think, Um, I think another one that I have found is that the, what's called like the hippo problem or the highest paid person's opinion. Hmm. Um, This is, Probably one of the biggest reasons why I think they struggle with innovation, because someone, uh, you know, a vice president or a director level person will say, this is what we're doing. They may have some data. They usually do. They have some indication of why they should do it based on consumer interest or or whatnot. Um, But when you actually go to instrument like the actual product that they go to release. It's often based on what looks good or some subjective uh, feeling about the product or how it works. It's not necessarily based on controlled experimentation um, or detailed you know, user research. This is something that I ran into in my role at Kroger and why they invested in implementing an experimentation program um, was because a lot of decisions early on in the history of digital were being made based on, you know, not necessarily hunches, but 
uh, assumptions. Uh, and so I think that's an area that really the bigger companies can improve upon is using experimentation extensively for developing new products. And then I think the other like third component is that the companies are just so big that they tend to move slowly. And so one of the advantages that startups have is that they're typically smaller. They have less of a hierarchy. It's more of a flat organization. So not only do decisions get made fast, but they're able to build products quickly. Uh, at some of the larger companies, because there's more at stake, there's more at risk. They tend to have a lot of like uh, restrictions around how they operate, whether it's how the code is deployed or how it's written, uh, certain standards for you know, how the product needs to be built or maintained. And all of those things, I think that they make things go more slowly from what I've observed. I think it's, it's, I agree with all that. And I, but what I, what I find just an interesting is conceptually that they still, or a lot of them seem to try, they continue to try to innovate from within. So they immediately, even though I hope that they're aware of all of those challenges, they're like, well, you know, we've got so much risk and legal and compliance are going to get involved and we have to make, you know, Mr. Hippo happy. And even though they're aware of all those things, they're still like, but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to try this. And to me, it, it seems like, you know, that's not really a tried and true. That's not how innovation has happened successfully too often, you know, out in the wild, or it's rare that, you know, the risk-taking, you know, Elon Musk, regardless of what we think of his business, he's a risk-taker. And, you know, that company is set up culturally to take some some risks. And obviously some people don't like that. Or, you know, you mentioned, you know, Amazon and it's just a it's a whole cultural thing i think corporately when they when they do succeed inside but yeah. i wonder why aren't there more i don't know if i was ceo or a c suite or a director level you know of some uh, publicly traded company and i would recognize the risk but i would also recognize the need to innovate i feel like i would find a way to participate getting an external perspective, you know, or participate in the external startup ecosystem in, in some manner that would benefit my firm, but all the risk is absorbed outside of my entity. Yeah. And I think one way that companies, big companies do that is they set up separate entities and to the credit of Procter and Gamble, I think that's what they were attempting to do. And I don't know what's happened since, but when they created Alchemy, their wholly owned subsidiary, it was specifically aimed at fostering innovation because it was not only uh, like separated from just an organizational structure perspective, but also was physically separated, had its own office, its own team, uh, and its employees were employees of the subsidiary, not of Procter & Gamble. And I think that was a great example of the company investing in innovation in 
what I would argue is the right way where you kind of partition it off to the side, let them make decisions, fail fast, and then things that work out, you can fold them into the larger organization. So kind of like an R&D arm. Um, Walmart has done a really good job of doing that too, from, from what I've read. I mean, even walmart.com, for example, is a separate entity from Walmart, the big giant you know, company that has all the stores. And I thought that structure was really interesting as well. And they've done a fantastic job of partnering with startups. And also, I mean, Kroger has done some of that locally, um, not so much with local startups, but with companies around the country and around the world. Um, they've not necessarily acquired them, but they've definitely had strategic partnerships with a variety of different early stage companies to either develop or commercialize different technologies. So it seems like they're trying, they're heading in the right direction, um, but I don't know that it's, it's fast enough. And to your point about companies' culture, that is a major component of their ability to innovate. Um, like I was saying earlier, the acceptance of, of failure is kind of a recipe uh, or an ingredient for success in that recipe of innovation. If you don't have that early on, it's very hard to put it back in place like after the fact. One of the things that I've noticed from an external pr perspective is in, you know, each of these endeavors and all these, you know, big codes, they've got different names for, you know, how, why they're, you know, make their program sound sexy and innovative. I find that they, um, they source the talent, the individuals that are supposed to, you know, do whatever from within the organization. and I'm thinking to myself, tell me like why that makes good sense. If you have someone with corporate experience, but not someone with innovation or startup experience, it seems to me like I would reach out because you had said something last time on, you know, it's in a, in a small ecosystem like Cincinnati, it's not like you can bounce from startup to startup to startup. But what if, I mean, what if those, big companies, and you mentioned too, Procter & Gamble and Kroger, well, what, what if they set up their own little mini external startup ecosystems and they sourced their innovation talent and they became a landing pad when the inevitability of the majority of startups you know, will fail and provide a landing spot for entrepreneurs to do something fun and great until they iterate or they pop back in you know, to the community. You know, that's just something that that I've been watching kind of saying, why do you think this guy that's worked for you for 10 years and you're telling me how, you know, amazing and great he is seriously, like, is that, is that, is that really the best move? Yeah. You know, I, I think that some of the companies, especially locally have done that without realizing it, they've become kind of that safe, soft landing for entrepreneurs whose companies, unfortunately, you know, didn't make it myself included. Um, and culturally they can be like, if they have set up a, a separate entity, like what P&G did, it can be a nice transition from operating in a startup, either as an employee or as a founder to the world of a larger, like fortune 100 or fortune 500 company. I don't know why there's not more of that. Um, you know, I, I 
see that there's been a lot of like former colleagues of mine that either worked at a startup and maybe they went to a different city. Um, but there was a lot of us that actually went to Kroger or P&G. Um, it's interesting because many of us went at, to P&G at Alchemy and then we ended up all together at Kroger, um, you know, a couple of years later. Uh, so it's, it's happening. I just don't think it's happening as fast as, as we would like. And I think the reality is too, is that many of us who are entrepreneurs, we just don't make great employees <laughs> and that's maybe like um, cliche to say, but like a lot of us. No, it's, you know, fa- it's great. It's fascinating. Unpack that. I want, I want to hear that. So I, I think we have a tendency, like people that have started our own companies to ask a lot of questions, um, which depending on who you're asking the questions of, they may not actually like, they just want someone to go execute, right? You tell them what you want, when it needs to be done, maybe even how it needs to be done. And then you just go out and do it uh, no matter how difficult it is or, or whatever. And a lot of times a, a founder personality type would ask like, well, why are we doing it that way? How do we know this is the right direction to go? Um, what does success look like? I mean, there were decisions that I saw over the past three years that I would ask, how do we know this is successful? When we launched this or that or whatever, you know, the product was, how do we measure its outcome? And oftentimes there wouldn't be a good answer. Um, So that that would happen um, pretty often. I think another aspect of it is that entrepreneurs and people with that personality type or professional experience, they tend to move a little more quickly and make decisions a little more quickly than maybe some senior business executives would, would like. Um, I think at larger companies, there's a more of a analysis period that goes into to doing certain things. Whereas I am, and those that I've worked with that are also founders, um, they've made decisions and kind of just like want to get out to the market as quickly as possible, learn from customers, and then you know, kill off the feature or product if it doesn't work. And again, it all goes back to that cultural aspect of this, right? That the people that are the leaders and your colleagues in the organization have to view failure not as a loss, but as just a requirement. It is part of the process of innovation. If you want to create new things, you have to be willing to have a lot of false starts, things that just don't work out. And I think the entrepreneurial personality type, they embrace that. And so it can be like a square peg in a round hole. I mean, I often felt over the past few years working in these larger organizations that it was like I was speaking another language at times um, because I would just want to move quickly and get things out there. And I just wouldn't resonate with everybody. Um, A lot of times I just wanted to spend more cycles on figuring out what's the right thing to build before just shipping it. I, I think this is gold. Uh, I mean, so, so, and I'm, I'm, I'm buying what what you're selling. So you're basically making a claim, Gary, that 
you know, every individual that, that walks the face of the earth, not only do we sometimes, you know, we don't all look the same on the outside, but from a personality standpoint, you're suggesting we, each one of us, you know, could be bucketed into types and there, and there is an entrepreneurial type. And that type is, you use the words, speaks a different language. And part of that is all bottled up into the, you, you know, not, that's why you bounce in and out of these, these fortune, you know, 500, you know, type companies. And so you, the flip, you know, that I would think might be true as well is to say, okay, well, it, if entrepreneurs have a type and if that type is so different, then that means um, longtime corporate employees are a type as well. And perhaps they would m not make good startup employees or founders. You think the flip's true? I mean, I think there's exceptions on both sides, uh, of course. Um, but yeah, I think that there's certain individuals that are more risk adverse and want to study things for a longer period of time uh, before they act. And for most startups, not all, um, but for many, moving quickly, uh, learning and testing and iterating is really a requirement like that's just how you have to operate because you don't have an endless supply of capital you typically have a limited number of people on your team if it's if you even have a team it could just be you and a co-founder and so the one advantage that you have over a larger incumbent or a well-funded competitor is to move quickly and i think it just becomes ingrained and that's how someone who starts a company tends to to function um, I have seen successful founders come from big companies, but I often wonder, like, maybe they were, you know, they were just there for a long period of time and they came across their problem that they, they went out to solve because they saw it in a big company. And in hindsight, I kind of wish I had taken that path myself because there were a lot of things that I learned as a first time founder uh, that I probably could have avoided had I had a bigger network from working in, you know, a corporate environment for a while. And it maybe would have given me a problem to solve that, you know, I immediately had a customer for. So I've seen that happen where a founder comes out of a big company and they can actually come back to their company and sell the product they create to them. So that's that's happened in the past as well. So I don't think I literally... that it's... Go, go ahead. I mean, I, I, I don't think that, you know, just because you worked at a big company, to be clear, like that doesn't mean that you can't be a founder. I absolutely think you can. In fact, I think there's a lot of people that would make great entrepreneurs that just for some reason don't believe in themselves enough to to take a chance on it. Or maybe they're just financially not in a position to be able to do it. And it's scary, right? Like I on one hand, like I I wish that I had more like corporate experience before I started my first company. But on the other, I feel like had I not started it when I was young and naive, uh, maybe I would have been less likely to do so because I didn't know what I didn't know when I was 19 starting my first company. And I think the older you get and when you have a mortgage and, you know, a spouse and, and kids, you know, to provide for um, it becomes 
more difficult for you to make that jump. I agree with you. This is probably my favorite topic currently on my plate, you know, professionally. And, and it's, it's one where I 100% believe that there is a type that is pre-programmed to be more successful, particularly in the, the early stages of a startup. And then I think our world is, you know, set up in a way that the risk taking is a lot more palpable, you know, when you don't have, first off, you don't know any better, you know, you don't know the, yeah. the, the, the pain, um, the, the struggle, the loneliness of being a founder and you don't have, you know, the, the spouse or children or mortgages, or you don't have, you know, those, you know, deep, uh, difficult, you know, you know, obligations. And then to your point, but you have no experience. And so it would be super helpful if a, a startup ecosystem was to really thrive, if there was, you know, some pretty serious support from, you know, the big co's to, to lend, maybe, maybe it's as simple as a little bit of monetary resources and a, and a couple of, um, a couple of people. I, I know I've asked, um, this, I mean, to me, I just, this, what I'm about to say cracks me up. I literally have approached two very large, um, companies in our ecosystem that I have relationships at and they're, you know, they talk about how they're interested in innovation and they just really don't know what to do. And what I told them was, I said, look, step one, you know, crawl, walk, run, crawl, just take a meeting. If I have a company that I think you could benefit from or that you'd be interested in investing in, or maybe you do a paid pilot, will you just take the meeting? And, you know, they literally, Gary, struggle with agreeing to that. They're like, well, you know, I, I just, you know, just, we just don't know. I mean. Oh, and I think part of that's just because it's the optics, right? Well, if it doesn't work out, it's going to make me look bad right? as someone who's in the company. And. I have found, sadly, that many people in larger organizations are motivated by simply getting promoted. Like, that's what they're trying to do. That is their end goal, to move up the ladder as quickly as possible. And I can respect that. Uh, but for me, what gets me excited professionally is creating new things, not protecting the old. And that's why I think I'm a better fit for startup environment. Because I enjoy the challenge that comes with just creating something from nothing or like putting different pieces of technologies together to, to make a new and better version of it. Whereas at a bigger company, it's you're often like you're building moats, like you're doing anything you can to like protect the castle from all these upstarts that are trying to chip away at, at your foundation. Um, and that's just not as exciting for me. And so I've seen culturally that it's the people that say yes to every request of the, the leadership that's and the ones that want to progress up the, the chain of command um, that are typically making a lot of the decisions that probably inhibits innovation. I'm not certain of that, but that's just one of my theories. I got a uh, email the other day too from a, from a third um, big co that, told me they had a job position that they were hoping someone in my network, you know, would, would take a look at. 
And the essence of the, the job description uh, from a personality standpoint, they literally said in the, the first sentence, we, we really looking for someone who's like a bulldog in a China cabinet. And I thought, oh, that's per- okay. Now you're speaking my language. That's good. And then they go on to say, and we will provide them with substantial resources to do the appropriate research to come up with the right ideas. And then I vomited all over myself saying, well, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. Yeah, I thought that research is not not good. I mean, you definitely need to do investigation into what your customers want. I mean, that's the whole customer discovery process is built on as well as product discovery, um, which is something that Kroger has done really well at implementing um, to various degrees of success, depending on what part of the organization you're in. But it's not something, it can't be the only input, I guess, that you have into making decisions for your product. And again, like for context, my experience in the big organizations in town is uh, largely in the product management function. And the common mix-up that happens there is that product managers are viewed as by the non-technical functions of the business as project managers. And so typically what will happen is, is that a business decision maker will give very specific requirements, such as what the product needs to do, how it needs to look, when it needs to be launched, and so on, to a product manager before the product manager and their product design counterparts have had the opportunity to actual to talk to real customers to go out in the field essentially and interview people that are actually be using their product. And that I've seen time and time again, because product management is not project management. Project management's more about delivering something on time and ensuring you know, all your T's are crossed and I's are dotted. Whereas product management is ensuring that you're building the right product for the right customer. So true. So you said you and a group of buddies, you know, um, not necessarily like deliberately, but uh, you found yourself all over at uh, P&G and uh, had the opportunity to do some stuff there and and, uh, work with Alchemy. And then you bounced over to Kroger. I'm just interested. What did you think? What was the bounce? Like what what did you think you would find at Kroger that you um, didn't? didn't find a PNG or was it just a, that you're an entrepreneur and that's what you do is you, you bounce. Yeah. So for me, it was a very unique opportunity at Kroger to uh, launch their experimentation program that, you know, focus on helping the teams do AB testing, which, you know, frankly, I was shocked that they weren't doing it yet because at the time already the company was doing a sizable digital revenue uh, from their online grocery business. Um, but the opportunity to come into a large organization, set up a team, implement a product and the processes necessary to use it, that felt very much like entrepreneurship, which was, you know, the, aside from running my own company, felt right. Like it sounded like a, a good opportunity. So, and I've learned so much doing that because, like I mentioned, I think in our previous discussion, uh, a lot of it was overcoming those cultural barriers 
uh, and changing the way that people think about building technology products. And in a way, our region, or at least in this greater Cincinnati area, is kind of behind with the controlled experimentation uh, because this is something that you know the Facebooks and, and Googles of the world have been doing for now well over a decade. You know, making decisions using experiments that run in our production environments. I read somewhere at one point that Facebook uh, runs at any given time about 10,000 variations of the Facebook website and native apps. Just to put that staggering number in, in perspective, I mean, that's a lot of different versions of the tab bar, for example, that's on like their mobile app or the way that things are structured inside of the newsfeed. And that's not something that I have found companies here locally are doing. And it's unfortunate because in a case of like Kroger, for example, they have a very large audience. Um, there's lots of people coming to their websites and apps. And I found it was more difficult to convince my colleagues to start and continue doing experiments on a regular basis uh, than it was to actually build the product necessary to make all that possible to run the actual experiments. I think people view, you know, risk in a very one-sided manner often and cuz you know versus, you know, there there are lots of there are lots of risks and you know for me the concept of putting all my eggs in one basket and you know you become, you know, you spend a lot of money, you spend a lot of time you know, inside an organization and you get collaboration and then you're like, okay, well, this is what we're doing. Maybe it's because of, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Hippo wanted to do it. And there's super high risk in that because then you kind of become pot committed and you just put so much, you know, into that versus I like what you're saying. Um, I, that is incredible to hear what Facebook is doing. But if you're running, you know, not even 10,000, but 10, or 50 or 100 experiments, and you're not putting significant resources in them in the beginning, then to me, that feels very low risk because inevitably the bulk are not going to be good ideas and they're just going to fail. And you, you get to gain all that knowledge, which is good. And you just continue to pivot towards whatever product or idea or app or whatever, you know, is gaining traction. And now you're getting that feedback from customers. And that's really the most important. And the, the toughest pill to swallow about experimentation, I think, for, for people when I was talking to them, was the fact that if something failed, like your hypothesis was disproven, that was viewed negatively. Like they would assume that that means, well, it, it's a failure. It's a huge waste of time. And I would have to convince them that, no, it is not it's okay for your hypothesis to be disproven because you have learned something. It is a signal now that you can use an input in your decision-making. And then you can run another experiment and another experiment and just do it over and over again until you find the best version of the product that you're building or that you're iterating upon. So that was definitely in hindsight now, looking back, that was the most challenging aspect of it, was just getting people to get over that hump of, it's okay that most of our experiments are duds. That's actually to be expected. 
um, based on all the research I've done, it's very common for the vast majority of controlled experiments run at everywhere from Amazon to Uber uh, to be failures. Like they just, the, their hypothesis is disproven and they move on and take that learning into the next one. So let's say someone's listening to this, you know, some big company and they're, they're like, okay, you're right. You know, what we've done has, has not uh, produced the results that we had hoped for yet. And they're, they're buying what you're selling. So they reach out to Gary Darna and they say, Gary, we're going to do it your way. We want to hire you. Would you go, would you go back to a big company? I think I would set up some type of consultancy in the future where I could help them implement and train their employees about how to do experimentation but ultimately, my professional goal is to be an entrepreneur. I want to start, grow, and, and hopefully someday sell a company. Um, that's what I've wanted to do since I was 19 years old. Um, and I know some founders, you know, they may have a failure or two and give up, but I am just persistent and believe that if I can take all these experiences I've had so far and channel them into the next venture, then hopefully, you know, there'll be a successful outcome. But I'm more than willing to help large and small organizations learn from my mistakes and my experiences uh, to implement things like controlled experimentation. I think that's good. And I I think uh, the flip side, um, and I'm glad you said it, because my ultimate recommendation back to the organization sent me that email was have you ever thought of a 1099 and not hire a full-time because you might have adverse selection and i think you could get some really high quality people that can come in and consult so that's the exact advice i gave them back so uh that's validating you know to hear from you so all right so you're gone so now what what are you doing so today i am the general manager of a company called fast and they are san francisco based uh, venture backed company. Uh, Stripe is one of the lead investors, and we're building one-click checkout for the entire internet. So I'm sure you're familiar with the Amazon buying experience, where for years they had a patent on the one-click checkout or buy now button on their product detail pages. So that patent actually expired uh, back in 2017 or 2018. And since then, in 2019, Fast was founded and has since gone on to raise over $100 million to bring this technology to all the other online merchants. That is, so that is quite a different experience. So yeah, have you learned, I mean, you got any good golden nuggets from working from a $100 million Bay Area startup? Well, I'm still relatively new. I just started on uh, January 19th. So it's been about six weeks now. Um, I mean, I think So far, the biggest learning that I've had is how transparent the company is. Um, We just hit 100 employees, so I was one of the first 100 to join the company. And it is amazing to me how just open and honest like the founders are and and other leadership team members, um, not only with the internal stakeholders like our team of colleagues, um, but also with the outside world. And Fast is really leading the way in a trend, uh, especially on Twitter, uh, called build in public. And it's the idea, similar to what I was mentioning earlier, that 
all of your highs and lows, like you can just be candid and, and show the world what's going on inside your business. Every startup doesn't need to be a stealth mode company. You can kind of, you know, give people a peek behind the curtain to see what's happening on the inside and what are some of the things that you're trying to overcome. And that has been really helpful for the company to recruit great talent. Um, and most likely, I think some of the investors as well. So it has, you know, a significant following. We've actually sold over 10,000 hoodies with just our logo on it because people really believe in what we're building and more importantly, how we're building it for all to see. That's incredible. I, I, I love um, radical transparency and being authentic. I mean, I think, you know, it um, cutting through, you know, all the stuff and just getting right to it. Uh, I've, I hadn't heard of your company. Um, I'm definitely going to, I certainly follow you, but I'm definitely going to follow uh, them and hopefully I can pick up some learnings maybe on how to build my company um, in that manner. Cause that's bold. I mean, that's, that's as bold as I've heard of. Yeah. And it's the trajectory of the company has been really incredible to watch. I mean, the timing I think was, it couldn't have been better, right? We talk about often with product market fit, one of the uh, components of that is timing. And uh, like I said, the timing could not have been better because, you know, we had this ongoing pandemic, unfortunately, that we're all navigating together. And this launched in 2019. And in 2020, what did we all see? Massive surge in e-commerce, right? So uh, being able to give a technology to the online sellers out there that, you know, they don't have a technology team. They don't have, you know, a programmer or a technical co-founder uh, available. Uh, they could use a plugin or some type of add-on for their online store to make things easier for customers to buy. And that's exactly what, what Fast is doing. So it's perfect timing, simple and focused product. And it's the cost effective too. I mean, it's a very simple pricing model. There's no like big contract that locks people in or any of that. So those things combined, it's just made it a rocket ship for sure. That's pre that's pretty cool. Now I know you just started there. I know you're loyal and and you're in all that stuff. But you did say that your dream is always to be an entrepreneur and a founder and the growth. Or are you like journaling or all your ideas that you're building up to to one day tackle again? Or how how are you thinking about you know your your future journey? So one of the things that I've been doing is I've never really stopped trying to validate different business ideas. It's just now instead of building, you know, a product and just putting it out there and trying to sell it, I am talking to potential customers before I write a single line of code. And one of the tools I'm using to do that is no code. So no code is applications like Webflow, uh, Bubble, Zapier and a bunch of others that allow you to build effectively a web application or a website without using any code. You don't have to write anything. And so this is a huge advantage now that exists compared to you know, 10 years ago when I was starting my previous company. You don't have to write the code anymore. And that allows you to go out there and reduce the technical risk, which has become very little and focus on the business model risk of any new business idea that you may have. And so what I've been doing really over the past couple of years 
is just if I come up with an idea or more importantly, see a problem that could be solved, I try to validate that this actually exists. The market is large enough to make a, a good business out of, and then what might be the right solution to approach it. And I've already invalidated one that unfortunately just would require too much capital um, to really be attractive, I think, especially given you know the constraints of, the, of that particular business. Um, but I'm working on another now that and just validating, you know, and then nights and weekends. So when you when you ultimately do this, are you are you working remote and you're still local, or have you moved to the Bay Area and and are you going to stay here local, or are you up in the air, or what's your yes. geographic plans? So that's a great question. Um, and that's another enormous benefit of FAST is that we have what's called FAST Flex. And that essentially means that an, a FAST employee can live and work from anywhere. You don't need to be in San Francisco to work at FAST. In fact, we have employees that are in Turkey, uh, Sweden, Canada. I mean, they're all over the world. And that I think is one of the coolest aspects of the company because it is truly embracing this remote work trend that we have seen and placing a bet on it that it's not going away, that the pandemic is only accelerated like it does has e-commerce, uh, but also the remote work um, you know, way of doing things. And so I think that's another thing I've learned is that when I go to start another company in the future, it almost certainly will be remote first. So I am staying in Cincinnati. Uh, you know, my wife is from here and our kids were born here. We you know, bought a house, so it doesn't really make sense for us to leave. Um, we like it here and we'd, we'd like to continue staying here. Um, and I would love to be part of the solution to the problems that we've discussed, you know, on our call is, you know, how do we make this a more innovative region and how do we have one of these successful uh, ventures that starts and grows and ultimately exits in this area. And now I want to be part of that solution. So that's why I, I would rather stay here than just go somewhere where that's already a commonplace thing. That's true. And I think that's, I think that's awesome. So whenever you do start that next venture, you're going to let me be one of your investors. Absolutely. I'll, I'll definitely let you know. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. And Gary, we could go on forever, but we're kind of at our time again. We've had two amazing calls, at least from my perspective. I've learned a lot from you. Um, and so hopefully in the not too distant future, uh, I'd, I'd love to do it again and, and hear how your um, career is progressing at FAST. For sure. Thank you so much for the invite. I really enjoyed this. And, um, you know, I definitely... We'll continue sharing my learnings on, on my website, which is just GaryDarna.com. Um, I've been trying to be pretty open and, and honest there, just about all, all the things I've learned over the years, good and bad. Absolutely. All right, Gary, appreciate it. You have a great day. You do. All right. Bye.